Kiddo and welcome. I'm Alexander. This is Need Demon Tech, covering the latest from the IT industry with a specific focus on Microsoft and how to get actual value from technology. This is episode 208, recorded on October the 11th, 2022, and at Data Minds Connect in Belgium. You will be able to find this and our previous episodes on NeedDemonTech.com, iTunes, Spotify, and on most podcasting platforms. We managed to track down Chris Webb of the Power BI Customer Advisory, or the CAT team. And we had a sit down. Unfortunately, the audio is, well, let's just say that we were not alone in the space that we were recording in. Uh, but we've done what we can, and I think it's still a very interesting conversation. Enjoy. And we are joined now by Chris Webb of Microsoft. Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you, hello. So, um, I'm sure that most of our listeners know who you are, but there are probably some three or four people in the far corners of the universe that have no idea who you are. So who are you and what do you do for Microsoft? So my name's Chris Webb. I work on the Power BI customer advisory team at Microsoft. Um, the way I explain what the Power BI CAT team does is um, something like this. We, we do two things. First of all, we help large customers be successful with Power BI. That means that if there's a crisis, we come in and solve the crisis. Uh, or on a normal kind of day-to-day -day basis, we go and advise them how to do stuff in Power BI, um, spread best practices, um, talk at conferences generally, you know, reach out to the community and to customers. The other half of what we do, which is the thing which isn't really visible, is that while we're out hanging out with people like you in the community, <laughs> we kind of have some drinks, get to know you, have some unfiltered conversations, um, and then find out what, what really works and what really doesn't work. You know, really get the feeling for you know, the good bits and the bad bits of Power BI. And we take all of that feedback from lots of different sources, we curate it, and then we feed it back to the product group. Mm -hmm. And we are the people that go into the product group and say, yes, that thing you've done works really well, or that thing you've done doesn't work really well, or you know, you need to fix this, or if they're, ha you know, if people are having a conversation about which features they're thinking of doing or how, we can, you know, we have opinions, but what we really bring are the opinions of customers, you know, real feedback from real customers. So, in in a word, uh, customer advocates. In, inside of yeah, Microsoft? exactly, exactly. Yeah. And it sounds a bit like undercover work, you know, taking a drink, getting the actual <laughs> truth out of people. Usually it doesn't take much effort to get the actual truth out of people, especially at an, an event like this. There's yeah. always lots of people who, you know, are willing to kind of like talk to you and say, Chris, Chris, I really need this feature. Um, yeah. And that certainly happens a lot on social media as well. Mm. But, um, you know, the other way I describe what we do is we, we, we're kind of a, a human shield for the rest of the product group. <laughs> because, you know, if you imagine you're a, a PM on the Power BI team, you know, your job is to build, you know, to plan new features and the developers have to go and build it. But stuff happens, you know, customers get in trouble, people complain and they say, oh, I'm, this, this product is terrible call the product group, I want their best engineers on there. And, mm. you know, the people who build the product, they know their little bit of the product, but they don't know Power BI end-to-end. -end. They don't know 
how it all works together. They often don't know how to deal with customers because they've never worked you know, in a customer-facing role mm. like a consultant. Um, so you know, what we do is, we do is we go in and you know, deal with these situations. And because <laughs> we on the CAT team tend to come from customer-facing roles, you know, people are you know, used to be consultants or trainers or you know, like Adam Saxon used to work in support, we're used to dealing with things, like yeah. situations like that. And then we can go in, you know, we're part of the product group. We've got product group job title. So we can say, yes, I'm a PM on the Power BI team. Um, customers say, ah, oh, okay, here are the people from the Power BI team and we can go in and, and solve the problems. Yeah. And of course, we've got the direct relationships with the people who really know stuff. So <laughs> you know, we know quite a lot, but if there's some weird behavior or there's something we don't understand, we can go directly back to the people who actually know and yeah. you know, get that inside information as well. Which kind of brings me to the question, you, you've not been at Microsoft forever. You had a life before Microsoft. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I have a good authority that you did. Yes, yes. And in what, fact, what I, had a, I, had, I worked at Microsoft before I had a life as well. Oh, really? <laughs> so this is the second time I worked at Microsoft. Um, so I've been around in Microsoft BI for not quite 25 years, but pretty long time. I think it was 1998 that I first started doing anything with Microsoft BI, which would be the the very first beta versions of what was OLAP services then, which then oh. became analysis services. Um, so that was quite a long time. Um, and then free, uh, for a brief period in the early noughties, I worked for Microsoft Switzerland as consultant um, doing analysis services work, um, or OLAP services as it was then. Uh, and then worked in a variety of kind of permanent jobs and then yeah, worked for myself doing consultancy and training for 13 years. So you know, I've been around and, and seen quite a lot. <laughs> well, I say I've seen quite a lot of Microsoft BI stuff. I haven't seen the world, yeah. you know, but I, I know the little bit of the world that is Microsoft BI fairly well. So what made you come in from the cold, so to speak? <laughs> how, how do you go from a very uh, successful consultancy to to decide to go on this enormous company? Well, that's a good question. I think the first thing was that I was asked. <laughs> um, but you know, I wouldn't have said yes unless there were, there were other good reasons. And there were a couple of different things. I think, first of all, the main reason was that I was getting a bit bored with what I was doing. Um, I mean, I've done consultancy and training for, like I said, 13 years. And that's a long time to be doing the same old stuff and I, it's not it hadn't always been the same stuff but I think I'd settled into a bit of a, a groove um, when I first started I just only ever did consultancy and then you know some friends said hey come and do some training so I kind of started to do a little bit of training and then did a bit more and then you know what I found was that with yeah, with analysis services and MDX which was what I was doing if you were like a kind of small one-person consultancy. You know, you, you could do quite well, you could like charge a reasonable amount of money, but whatever you could ch charge as a consultant, if you were coming in and doing a training course, you could charge double that. Yeah. Because 
as a consultant, you were kind of seen as a bit of a, an expensive resource yeah. and there's a bit of, you know, bit of a problem getting budget. But if you were coming in to do a private training course you know, mm. on site with a customer, um, what I found was that there's a choice that, you know, people, people have got training budget. You can either send all your people away to, you know, London or wherever to do a training course, then they're out of the office, they can't be contacted, you know, there are travel costs, there are hotel costs. And, you know, you go to one of those big training providers, they don't always have a good experience. You know, you get trained by somebody who might be a professional trainer, but they've never done stuff in real life. And quite often they they know 10 different technologies to do the training course. But as soon as somebody asks a question that isn't in the course yeah. materials, well, they don't know the answer. So they weren't getting a good experience there. And I found that, well, I can turn up, charge twice what I was earning as a consultant to do on-site training and still be way, way cheaper than people going and sending their people off to a, a training provider and give you know, much better you know, much better experience. So you tend to optimize for what you know, earns you more money. Um, so I was doing more and more training and I was doing a lot of travel. I was um, you know, doing perhaps like 10 nights away in hotels per month, um, traveling around the UK and around Europe. Um, and, you know, that was, that was hard and it was tiring, you know. Yeah. It's, it's getting older and, <laughs> you know, dragging a trolley bag around, you know, back streets of Mechelen or whatever to, you know, to get back to the airport, to get back home and you get back late. It was, it was quite tiring. Yeah. So, and that plus the fact that doing a training course means that you, you learn your training course. I mean, I, I think in my prime, there was about 10 days of training material that I could just recite. I knew <laughs> off by heart. I could turn up in a room. I you know, had my slides there, but as long as I got my laptop and my, everything set up for demos, there was like 10 days of material that I just knew and I could recite. And when you've done the same training over and over again, and you don't even get to do the, the fun, interesting consultancy stuff, mm. that, that's a bit boring. Yeah. You know, I mean, I was doing well, but I was just a bit tired and a bit bored and I wanted to change. Um, and the other thing, not wanting to get political, was Brexit was going to cause problems for me because, like I said, I was traveling not only all over the UK, but I was traveling all around Europe. And when I had a European passport, I could just turn up in Belgium, work, didn't need a work permit because I was an EU citizen, um, didn't have any tax problems, you know, to, you know, put your invoices in a certain format, but nothing else. And it was all just easy. And I realized with Brexit, well, I wasn't going to be able to turn up in the EU because I would need a work permit for every country I worked in. The tax situation would be way more complicated. And, you know, I, I was just not looking forward to that. I think I realized also that, you know, having done in-person training so long. I kind of preferred in-person training and I'd missed the, kind of missed the boat for doing video training, online training. You know, if you look at what Marco and Alberto have done with ADAX training, they saw that coming, they prepared, they did all the materials and they did it really well. They pivoted and they'd made that pivot well before. Yeah. And I was thinking, well, maybe I could do the same thing, but there's a lot more competition. It's, it's harder to stand out. It's, it's something that I just didn't really look forward to or enjoy. So 
I was kind of generally thinking, uh, yeah, I'm not all that happy, I'm a bit tired, I'm a bit bored. And then Casper de Jong, who's now my colleague, um, messaged me and said, hey Chris, I don't suppose you fancy coming and joining the CAT team. And I kind of thought about it very briefly and I thought, yeah, actually, that's a really good idea. It's, you know, it's, it's similar enough to be able to kind of take all my experience and be useful, but it's different enough to make a really nice change. Yeah. So you're running the European part of the CAT team? Yes. So the CAT team is split up into various different sub-teams. Over the last year or so, we've grown a lot. We've had a, a lot more headcount. Um, and whereas in the past, it was just you know, under 10 people or something when I joined, um, and we all kind of just did everything. Um, we're now split geographically. So I run the part of the team that covers Europe and the rest of the world. Um, Adam Saxton does the same job as me, but covers the Americas. Um, there's you know, two other different teams as well. And I've got nine people, I think, eight, nine people reporting into me. And you know, we cover all kinds of customers all, all around the world. So I'm, I'm curious, looking at Europe and looking at the US markets, um, as a consultant myself, I've always found that there's a pretty big difference in budgets for starters, but also the choices of, of technological solutions. From the CAT standpoint, would you say that there is a big divide between the US and the European customers or how, how they do things? Um, well, I mean, what I would say is the reason we kind of arrange ourselves geographically is that it, in the US, it is one big market, but the US tends to divide itself up by industry, you know, financial services, retail, or so on. That split doesn't really make sense in Europe. <laughs> Whereas in, in Europe, you've got big cultural divides, big business cultural divides, and also there's a language issue as well. You know, you need to have people in different countries who understand their kind of local cultures, but also to a certain extent can speak all the required languages. You know, and before we expanded, I would go to you know, meetings with customers in, in France and we would just about get by talking in a bit of um, anglais, <laughs> um, but it wasn't easy. But now I have somebody on my team, Benny, who is Belgium uh, and who speaks English, Flemish and French. You know, oh. He can go and speak to customers in French and it just means he's way more effective than I could ever be. And, you know, the same goes, you know, we've got a variety of, of language skills and that's something that I've specifically aimed for because, you know, like I said, a lot of what we do is interfacing with customers and, you know, I might go to Sweden, for example, and everybody speaks better English than the English in Sweden. Um, <laughs> but in other countries, you know, the language skills vary, so you've got to have you know, people who can communicate and understand the local culture. That's a very good point. The first time I went to Finland, <laughs> I was shown the hard way just everybody in Finland speaks English, no issues, but they don't prefer to speak English. And it is very important to have a Finnish speaker if, if you need to mm -hmm. uh, communicate anything in, in, in Finnish. Um, Feel free to jump in, Haney. Sorry, sorry, my brain is dead today. <laughs> it may or may not be due to the fact that she is nursing aging and tonic. I yes. haven't drunk any of it. I'm Yet. sorry. <laughs> but what, yes. what other reason why we're not doing this video? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, but I, I, I wanted to ask you. So, you've been at this since all app services, mm -hmm. aka ancient history. 
Um, how would you see, how would you say that Power BI has de developed over the years? It's not an old product, mm -hmm. but it's, it's come a long way. Yes, it's got a lot of old code and old bits in it. It's probably, it's a bit like the ship of Theseus or something, that bits of it have been replaced over the years, so there's probably not much original stuff left, but it's still analysis services at its core. There's still, you know, bits of Power Query are pretty old as well. Um, how's it changed? I mean, I think the main thing about Power BI is that technically, is it doing anything radically different that we couldn't do years ago? Not really at all. The thing that's changed, I think the thing that made, that, that really made Power BI different was the, the, the licensing, the way it was distributed. And, you know, it's now at a much, much, much bigger scale than um, any other BI tool. Um, and I think the perception is, depending on who you talk to, people outside the Microsoft BI community, people kind of look down a little bit on Power BI or they don't see it or maybe they work in companies that everybody's got a Mac or you know all the data scientists write Python but in the in the in the Microsoft ecosystem which is way way larger I think than anybody else's Power BI is just spread out without us needing to do any marketing simply because it's a great product it's easy to learn yeah. and it's you know you download Power BI desktop for free you can start learning it easily. There is a ton of free material out there on the internet from, you know, conferences, from you know, user group recordings, from blogs to videos on YouTube teaching you Power BI. And that just means that people can get going very, very quickly themselves. And that's how it just spreads virally. And of course, it, when the time comes to actually buy it, it is ridiculously cheap as well. And, and that's interesting you should say that because I, I had a chat with um, Amir Nets at the MVP Summit a couple of years back. And I, one of the things that I said was Power BI Premium is too expensive. And I didn't even get to finish that sentence before he said, no, it isn't. And we launched into a very interesting philosophical discussion. What is cheap? What is expensive? Mm -hmm. And that's when I realized the, the huge divide between Europe and, and, uh, and the U.S., mm -hmm. And then came Power BI Premium per user. It completely upended the whole equation. It went from, well, $5,000 is not cheap. It's not super expensive, but it's not cheap. And along comes this for a fraction of that. And suddenly everybody and their cat could do premium stuff. Yep. And I think that's when you overnight went from a good product, ubiquitous BI product, to something that everybody could use and really get value out of it. I mean, I think the thing about the, one of the interesting things I find about Power BI, and there are so many different aspects to this, is that it's now so big that you can't really ever get a, a feel for the whole of the Power BI market. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I found really interesting when I joined Microsoft was I thought yeah, I spent my whole life doing Power BI. Uh, you know, before I joined Microsoft, my whole professional life was all about Power BI. So I thought I knew <laughs> the Power BI market. But then you join the Power BI Cat team and you work with the really big customers. Yeah. The really big customers who don't always spend money on outside consultants or at least small independent outside consultants. And everybody, pretty much everybody we work with has premium. Yeah. And you know, there's, there's a lot of it about, but that's my perception because I only work with the really, really big customers. And it was just, a, it was a big, 
change because you just suddenly saw a completely different side of the market. And that's something that is actually quite relevant for the job I do for providing feedback because everybody, you know, you talk to MVPs, consultants, um, everybody feels like because they work full-time with Power BI, they know the Power BI market. They wouldn't pretend to know everything about the technology, but they do have this feeling they know everything about the Power BI market because that's what they do all day. All of their customers do Power BI, all of their projects are Power BI, so they think that is their perception. And then as a result, you get this feeling that like the problems you come across are the problems that everybody must come yeah. across. And therefore, why, you know, these idiots at Microsoft, there are some <laughs> problems that are so completely self-evident that everybody has because, you know, I personally, all my customers have this problem. You think, why on earth does Microsoft not solve that? And you look at it from the inside outwards, there's, you know, I, I really pity the actual feature PMs because from every single side, there are all of these people who are absolutely convinced that there are these problems that they face that everybody else must therefore face and then Microsoft is completely stupid and in, in, incompetent because they're not solving <laughs> these immediately obvious problems. Whereas actually, you know, it's just your bit of the ecosystem. There's that famous story of the, the blind philosophers and the elephant and they all feel different parts of it. They feel the trunk, they feel the tail, they feel the legs and they all describe it. And it, it it's very much like that with the Microsoft market. And, you know, as a result, I'll take one feature, things like translations. Power BI doesn't do translations that well. There are solutions for it. We're slowly improving it. In some countries, translations are massively important. And the fact we don't do it is a big problem for all customers. But in the US, who cares about translations? Yeah. Everybody speaks English. So, you know, in countries where there is one language, nobody cares about translations in countries where there are multiple official languages and there are maybe rules about having material in different languages, this is a big thing. And, you know, naming no names, but you see some people out there on social media who get really, really, you know who I mean, get really, <laughs> really angry about certain features. And it's, it's not that we're incompetent or we don't listen. It's kind of like, oh yeah, that's an interesting point. I've never heard that before because, yeah. you know, it, it's not something, and we've just got to prioritize fixing that with fixing all of the other different things that maybe that other one person has never ever heard of, but are equally important. It's, it's very much the Dunning-Kruger effect mm. in, in reality. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, ha have you seen like a difference in how Power BI is leveraged in the bigger companies versus the smaller, mm. in addition to the licensing factor which is maybe more evident? Absolutely. I think that that's a really good question because going back to the difference you know, with how Power BI is used in different places, Power BI started off as a pure self-service BI tool and then there was just more and more adoption from kind of real BI pros. I mean to be honest I don't like the distinction between kind of corporate IT and self-service. I think it's more of a spectrum. But yeah. you know, it gets used in more and more in these kind of enterprise scenarios where there are people who are consultants or full-time Power BI developers who are you know, maybe work for the large you know, consultancy companies doing stuff with Power BI. And you know, they say, well, you know, where are all of the enterprise development features that we need? Yeah, we're, we're working on adding them, but it's 
you know, now we're at the, a point where instead of just having a self-service BI tool, we've got to have a tool that can, you know, caters to the self-service market, the person who just wants to connect to an Excel file and get stuff you know, working really, really easily, and the person who needs to connect to a you know, data lake, do some complex stuff, check their data set definition into source control, um, you know, do automatic deployments, all of these different things. And it's, it's quite hard to handle the competing requests and put it all together into a single tool that's going to work well for everybody. Yeah, that is actually quite a wide range of ways and everything that is in between those mm. two extremes. Yeah. And how, how would you say, how can you surface these struggles? Because it's clearly a case of people on the outside, they have no idea about these things. And there's only so many of you. I'm, I'm thinking that the CAT team is essentially the only people that talk about this openly. Well, I mean, we do always like to scale out through the wider Microsoft field. So, you know, we don't work on our own. We work very closely with all of the, the CSAs and the account teams for you know the, the kind of local Microsoft stuff. We work very closely with people in the community because we're out having drinks and <laughs> you know, making friends with you at conferences and having honest conversations and then hopefully you know understand our point of view a bit more and yeah. you know with more communication there's more understanding. Um, but it is you know it is hard. Um, we're always looking for ways that we can scale out what we do. So if there is a best practice or there is an interesting technical tip, you know we will try and make sure it gets documented. Have a look at the Power BI guidance documentation site. That's where a lot of our kind of most refined stuff ends up. But also you know we blog, we write you know do videos. Um, we present at conferences. If I can present something at a conference to 100 people, that's great. If I can write a blog post that reaches a few thousand people, that's great. You know, we, we reach people however we can. For sure. Um, another thing that I want to touch on, you have spent an entire life working very deeply technical, right? Now you're more into managering, managering things, <laughs> if that's even a word. Yeah. So how, how do you keep, I was about to say relevant, but, but how, how do you keep your, your skill set alive in a managerial role? Do well, you need I mean, to, for starters? I think you do need to, yep. to a certain extent, because I don't think you can manage a team of people doing stuff unless you have some idea of what they're doing and the, the, um, you know, the, the, the struggles they face. Um, so, and you know, I, I want to stay a little bit technical, but there is always, and I want to say a lot technical, but there, there is always a trade-off. And I yeah. specifically asked to become a manager. It was my choice. It wasn't something that was forced upon me. Um, partly I wanted to do it because I wanted a new challenge. You know, I've done technical <laughs> things for a long, long time. I'd never, ever been a manager. I'm in my late forties. And I thought, well, you know, it's now or never. Wouldn't it be really nice to say that I've had a, you know, I've been a manager, or I've had a team, people, it's just, it's a very different set of skills. So I thought it was a, an interesting new challenge. Um, how do I stay relevant? Well, I still do a bit of customer facing work myself. Um, I look after customers in the UK. Um, and, you know, the way we, the way we work, it kind of goes back to whether you can know something well by not doing. And, and nobody on the CAT team does Power BI projects. You know, we come in and, and solve specific problems. But by kind of specializing a little bit um, on specific areas, we can go in and 
keep solving those problems and you know by being able to talk directly to the developers and finding those kind of little you know, nuggets of information that's where we can kind of improve our skills and kind of deepen those specialisms. That makes sense. So another thing, you, you talked about training. And mm -hmm. so both Haney and me are, are certified trainers. I'm thinking that you used to be a certified trainer as well. I was never a certified trainer. You were trainer. never a certified trainer. No, I was trainer. never a certified trainer. I always wrote my own material, never bothered doing any. I've never done a Microsoft certification or had any Microsoft really? anything whatsoever in my entire life. Oh, you heard cool. it here first. Chris Webb does not have any certifications. Nope. How, how are you qualified, sir? I guess I just like blogged and then people thought that person knows what he's talking about. True. So. so, but still, you did a lot of training. How would you say that the training landscape has changed over the year? I mean, we, we've, we were used to going into the classroom, essentially locking ourselves in for five days straight. That's no longer the case. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's interesting because the thing I do none of nowadays, I don't do any training. So that was the, one of the biggest changes joining from Microsoft. I was kind of essentially spending 80% of my t time doing trainings, doing absolutely nothing. Um, you know, I enjoy training. I kind of hope I was okay at it, but that was something that I, I did kind of like drop almost completely. Um, how are things changing? Well, like I said, there's that shift to online. And I think kind of in the way that the first motor cars were like effectively carriages without the horse in, originally the first kind of online training was just offline training recorded. Yeah. And I think what we're doing is we're kind of coming to the realization that there are better ways of doing training. I mean, something that I saw over the weekend and something I've kind of like followed quite closely is um, there's a, an Excel person, Miss Excel, Kat Norton, who kind of came to fame very, very quickly, I think last year or the year before, doing Excel videos on TikTok, has <laughs> millions of followers, and now makes, there's a Business Week article about her talking about how much money she's making from like selling training courses from TikTok. Now, okay, so you get a following on social media and you know, sell training courses and yeah, it kind of blah, 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 blah. But, you know, when you look at what she does on TikTok, and when you look at her, I've se I haven't seen her training courses, but I've seen the, the kind of um, advert reel for her training courses. You kind of think this person is an absolute genius because it's the step change. It's not some fat, white, middle-aged bloke like me on camera for hours and hours that everybody gets bored listening to. It's short nuggets of information yeah. with other fun stuff going on to keep your attention. And I was kind of like watching this show reel thinking, oh, normally I'd have got bored by now, but I want to carry on watching. And there's all this other weird stuff going on, but it doesn't distract. It just keeps yeah. me engaged. And you kind of think that is the genius of what she's done. She's taken it on to the next level. Yeah. She's taken the things that everybody has learned from social media and you know keep the, what the Kardashians have done or whatever, <laughs> keeping people engaged, turn it to Excel training and made it work. And this is, you know, maybe you lose something by not having the long form, you know, maybe you lose something by not having that real kind of deep level engagement. But let's face it, everybody just got bored. Yep. You know, I got mm -hmm. bored. I, yeah. like going to conferences and watching sessions, but sometimes you get bored in the session. Yeah. 
and there are more temptations nowadays. You kind of get your phone, and if you're trying to learn something, being engaged is everything. Yeah. And we've learned an awful lot from social media about how to keep people engaged. You know, everybody has a short attention span. Everybody wants to be entertained. Everybody wants stuff that keeps them engaged. And if you can do that, but then like put some Excel information in <laughs> in the middle of it. That's actually a that's actually a much more effective way of learning, I think. Yeah, that that just <laughs> that's a lot to process, but I think that they're they are onto something. Mm. Yeah, I mean, we we can just look at your colleagues, Patrick and, and Adam. They're yeah. have made it quite a name of themselves. Yeah. doing short to the point videos. Yeah, exactly, and you know, Adam is very very clear on this. Nothing goes over ten minutes. It's always going to be fun. It's always going to start with yo. The production quality is always really high. You don't go into the obscure stuff. I love the obscure stuff. I mean, I, I love, love the obscure stuff. And nowadays, a lot of what I blog about is for my own personal education to make sure I write something down, I don't yeah. forget it, and it's there. You know, there's an audience for it. But if you go for, you know, short to the point, obvious questions that people need answering, That's always going to get loads more traffic. Like yeah. you know, for example, I like I said, over the last year or two, my blog has kind of got a bit more. Well, let me say obscure. <laughs> There's just more and more interesting things that I found from talking to the developers, and less and less of the the kind of general use yeah. stuff. And you know, uh, like. It kind of got to the point where this summer I was doing like a six-part series about the enhanced refresh API, and you know I thought this was good. I wanted to write it down. I found it quite interesting. Writing it down helped me for my own education. But yeah, the stats showed, showed that nobody was really all that interested in it. Um, the first one, first, first post in the series would get fairly good yeah. know, stats, and then everybody else, it's like part seven, right? Oh, I'm not that interested, so I'm not even going to bother watching. This Sunday, I kind of sat down and thought, well, what am I going to write about? And I thought, well, people always ask me, people always get confused between what direct query mode and a live mm. connection is. And I thought, surely somebody's written about this already, and they, they kind of had and they kind of hadn't. And I thought, well, why don't I just sit down and write a, as clear an explanation as I can do? And of course, as soon as you do that, it gets shared thousands of times more, it gets yeah. thousands more views. It shows what people want and what they're interested in. I'm not necessarily, I'm not selling stuff anymore. Um, I'm not in the game of just getting views for the sake of it. But you know, it does show what people want to help with. Yeah, clear, concise information. Yeah. I'm going to go back to the obscure stuff soon, <laughs> but maybe I'll, I'll spend a little bit more time kind of writing the the more kind of overview type blog yeah. posts as well. But you're, you're definitely also pointing out one of the the issues with social media in general and in the landscape training landscape that we see is you find something that gets traction mm -hmm. then you keep doing it meaning yeah. that the obscure stuff gets less mm -hmm. and less and less but yeah. it's still maybe not equally important but mm -hmm. it's very hugely important but yeah. it's not as fun it's not as interesting mm -hmm. people fall asleep and suddenly that yeah. information gets lost so to speak and you know i think the advantage i've got from blogging for so long is that i have if i got over a thousand five hundred posts on my blog something like that i mean a really wow. a really large number of <laughs> posts and there are a couple of hundred 
yeah, maybe about 500 that get one or two hits a day. Yeah. But that's you know, one or two hits from somebody who really, really needed to know about the data privacy settings in Power Query, mm -hmm. or really, really needed to know about some other obscure thing, because <laughs> that was the problem they were getting. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, there's a, there are some posts that get 10, there are some posts that get 20 hits. There's, I think, you know, quite a large number of posts I've written who get, that get about 40, 50 hits a day. Um, you know, some of the, looking at my kind of stats, there are some things that always get a, you know, that, in that 40 to 50 hits a day, things like um, error messages. If you write a blog post about a certain error message, people Google for error messages. Maybe it's not an error message that you get an awful lot, but if there are 40 or 50 people who get that error message a day and they look for it and they find your post, well, that's 40 or 50 hits. Yeah. But maybe there's no other blog post. There might be some questions on the Power BI community sites about this where nobody really understands what's going on or maybe there's some bad advice or something. Mm. But, um, you know, that, that, you, you, I've got that long tail. But I've, that's because I've been doing it for years and years, and I can get fairly good traffic just from having a really, really long tail. Super. We are running out of time, as we generally do. We are terrible <laughs> at keeping to, to time. Thank you so much for coming on. It's been a really interesting conversation. I've learned lots more about Chris Webb than I thought I would ever do. <laughs> um, so again, thank you for coming on, and uh, have a good one. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Native in Tech. Native in Tech is a bi-weekly technology podcast hosted by Alexander Arvidsson, Simon Binder, and Haini Hilmaninen. If you have any feedback, questions, or would like to be part of an episode, please reach out to us on social media or via email at podcast at nativeintech.com.